Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Michael Reardon, Professor of Cardiothoracic Surgery and Allison Family Distinguished Chair of Cardiovascular Research at Houston Methodist Hospital in Texas, USA. It's a very famous institution that I've had the privilege of, uh, of visiting. Michael grew up in Houston, where he attended Baylor College of Medicine, graduating with honors. He completed a five-year general surgery residency in the Baylor-affiliated hospitals and a two-year cardiothoracic residency at the world-famous Texas Heart Institute. He's run a flourishing private practice and served on the full-time faculty of Baylor College of Medicine, where his professor of surgery, chief of the division of cardiothoracic surgery, program director of the cardiothoracic residency, and vice chair of academic affairs in the Department of Surgery. He spent his entire career in Houston at Methodist, serving in numerous administrative positions, including president of the medical staff. He served as principal investigator for multiple clinical trials, and we're going to dig into that anon. The Good Doctor's publications number in the hundreds of medical and scientific papers, book chapters, and abstracts, and he frequently lectures nationally and internationally on his research and clinical interests of cardiac valvular disease, transcatheter and open structural heart disease therapy, thoracic aortic disease, and cardiac tumors. Absolutely fascinating. His list of honors is equally impressive, and he also finds time to review for journals and act in an editorial capacity. Dr. Reardon was born in Houston and met his future wife in high school there. He's been married over 48 years and has two daughters, three granddaughters, and one grandson. He was the first chief of cardiothoracic surgery at Baylor College of Medicine after the retirement of Dr. Michael DeBakey, who I think everyone in medicine knows, uh, knows of. And he was the first chief of cardiac surgery at the Houston Methodist Hospital. His professional focus is program building and support of young surgeons. He's an avid marathoner and skier and when younger, but now his focus is on family time and travel. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you with us today, Michael, and I can't wait to dive into all of this with you. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Michael Reardon. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for helping me. I, it's a great pleasure and a privilege to be part of the podcast, and I really look forward to our conversation. Well, you know, I always tell people that, you know, I started doing this at the, the COVID times, and um, I suddenly realized that, you know, I, I have a passion for learning. And my, my love of medicine has been a lifelong love affair. And I get to talk to fascinating guys like you who are doing amazing things that I didn't even know were possible. So let's start at the very beginning. What inspired you to pursue your career in cardiothoracic surgery? And you got into it at, at an amazing time. And, you know, you, you've seen so much change. Well, Jonathan, when I, when I went to medical school, which was back in the late 70s, Dr. Michael DeBakey and Denton Cooley were at their height in Houston. And so it was very easy for me to see what was going on and very hard for me to resist the siren song of becoming a cardiac surgeon and trying to emulate these giants. My other hero was a doctor named Stanley Crawford. Dr. Crawford taught the world how to do thoracal abdominal aneurysms. And in fact, when I was Dr. Crawford's intern, at that time, he was doing two thirds of the open thoracal abdominal aneurysms on the planet Earth. I can remember one Sunday as an intern, 
I admitted 16, author 16 thoracic abdominal aneurysms and three regular abdominal aneurysms. So that was a really exciting time. And, and cardiac surgery was something that that's filled me with inspiration. And for my four decade career has continued to fascinate me and challenge me and keep me interested. Well, it, it's, I think probably more than probably any specialty, the changes have been astronomical. Uh, and, and let's dig into that. You know, since I qualified, cardiac surgery has undergone a phenomenal transition, becoming less and less invasive for the treatment of coronary artery disease, valve diseases, dysrhythmias, so many things. So let's start with, uh, with one topic, the aortic valve. And I think it's around 20 years since transcatheter aortic valve implementation, or as you were telling me in America, um, repair or TAVI over on this side of the duck pond was first presented. It's about 20, 20 years. Although we mostly have clinicians listening, Michael, do you, we do have a lot of very interested lay people in our audience. So can you start by defining why TAVI was such a leap forward, maybe comparing and contrasting with open valve surgery, and then broach what the SOAR-TAVI trial has taught us? And you also uh, led the Evolute trial. So tell us about that, please. So the floor is yours, TAVI. Well, thank you, Jonathan. So TAVI has been one of the most interesting parts of my career and probably the biggest advance that I've seen in the 40 years I've been practicing heart surgery. So people that have aortic stenosis, which is a narrowing of the aortic valve, the valve lets the blood out of the heart to the rest of the body, have a very high rate of mortality because the heart can't push the blood through a smaller and smaller hole. And once you get symptoms and severe aortic stenosis or narrowing of the valve, your risk of dying starts to approximate 1% per month. There is no medical therapy for this. It's a mechanical problem. And the only way you can make it better is basically to open up that hole by putting in a new valve. Now, through most of my career, the only option for that was for us to operate on you. And when I started, they were all done through a full sternotomy. When we opened your breastbone down the middle, we put you on the heart-lung machine, we stopped your heart, we opened your aorta, you cut out the valve, and we sewed in an artificial valve. And then we took you off the heart-lung machine and sewed up your chest. Now, that is probably one of the most successful operations ever invented as far as making people live longer and live better because the underlying disease is so deadly. The problem was it was big open heart surgery, and a lot of these aortic stenosis cases occur in elderly patients. And when you get to be in your 80s or even your 90s, recovering from heart surgery is a very difficult thing to do. So heart surgeons started becoming less invasive, learning to do this through smaller and smaller holes. And some of these are even done robotically now, but they still require you to go on the heart-lung machine, have your heart stopped, have it open, the valve cut out, and a new valve put in. So a little over 25 years ago, some people sat around and said, well, listen, why can't we do like we do in arteries and put a stent in there to push the old valve out of the way, but have a valve inside the stent and let it fall into place and have a new valve? Henning Anderson uh, from Europe originally thought this up. His, he took it to his department. And they told him, oh, this will never work and didn't want him to do it. He got together with a surgical resident and actually made his own valve out of the wires from closing the sternum and a pig that he got at the butcher's shop and put it in some animals. And he actually showed it could work, but he couldn't get anybody to publish it because they thought it was too crazy. Well, people continued to push on. And by 2002, Alain Cribier in Paris 
did the very first one in a man who lived through the procedure. And that's what launched us in 2002 into kind of the TAVI revolution. Since that time, there have been a number of randomized trials comparing this against surgery. There were two high-risk trials, two intermediate-risk trials, and two low-risk trials. Sertavi was the self-expanding Evolute core valve trial against intermediate-risk surgical patients. And what we saw in that trial was that at five years, there was no difference in mortality between TAVI and surgery. What happens with TAVI is you recover a lot faster. In fact, most of my patients go home the next day, and by one week, they're back to completely normal activity. I just presented the four-year outcomes from the Evolute low-risk trial comparing TAVI against low-risk surgical patients in a randomized trial. And what we saw was that the endpoint of all-cause mortality disabling stroke was statistically lower in, in TAVI than it was in surgery. And the mortality, the early mortality advantage of TAVR is holding up at four years. So there's really a lot of very fascinating things going on in the field of TAVI. These valves are continuing to iterate and get better and better, easier to put in. I said, I've done eight this week so far, and all of them have gone home already. And I expect them by this time next week to be back to completely normal activity. So in my entire career, this is really one of the more fascinating things and one of the best things for my patients that I've seen. So for the, for the benefit of the non-docs, uh, on uh, uh, listening to this podcast, the average patient prior to TAVI, how long would they have spent in hospital from an aortic valve, a stenotomy? And, uh, usually, you know, usually you'd be in the hospital for seven to 10 days. And then when I tell you when you went home, you couldn't lift over 20 pounds for two months and you had to be very careful. By two months, you'd be about 80, 85% recovered. But it takes most people about six months to get completely over open heart surgery as opposed to one week with TAVI. Yeah, it's quite, quite astonishing. I, I've seen patients who've had it and yeah, we'll come on to some of the other things. So, you know, people I know who've had AAAs done um, minimally invasively, it's quite, quite astonishing. So let's move on and, and to another uh, valve, the core valve, the Evolute trial, the four-year low-risk data. You were mm -hmm. telling me that it was, the, it was the big thing at the TCT meeting. Talk to us about that, if you will. Well, I think, you know, everybody's excited about TAVI because we, we all in the field knew that TAVI had an early advantage in, in better mortality, less stroke, and much, much faster recovery. The question has always been, would that early advantage hold up over time, or would surgery, although more invasive to begin with, end up with a better outcome as time went on? And what we saw in the Evolute trial was that the early advantage of TAVR is not only maintained at four years, it's slightly widening in favor of, of TAVR. Now, this is still very early data, and the average age was 74. And so we really don't know about you know, much younger patients, and we need longer-term data. But so far, this is very encouraging. So um, uh, moving to a, a, a different trial, the ARISE Type A stent graft trial, you're the national study chair, can you please tell us about that and what some of the results are? Well, let's start for a minute, Jonathan, about talking about type A dissections. Aortic dissections are where the wall of the aorta splits, but not all the way out. It doesn't rupture. It splits partway in the wall. And then the blood dissects along the artery, splitting it into a double barrel tube. As it rips, it hurts quite a bit, but it also eventually will rupture. So if you have a, a type A dissection is when the main artery off the heart, the ace in the aorta, tears and dissects. If you have a type A dissection, 
your risk of dying is 1% per hour for the first 48 hours. It is a bad problem. The problem again is many of these people come in very sick and elderly and they're not very good candidates for the surgery that's required. The surgery that's required is I have to open your chest, put you on the heart lung machine, cool you down to your very cold, shut off your circulation for a while while I do the downstream part of the graft up by the head arteries, and then clamp that graft, turn the circulation back on and complete the operation. That's a very large operation. In the rest of the vascular tree, we've approached more and more with stent grafts uh, using an endovascular technique. We replace almost all abdominal aortic aneurysms now with this way. We can replace the descending thoracic aorta with, with stent grafts. The problem with the ascending aorta is it's curved. And at one end, you have the aortic valve and the coronary arteries. If I cover those up, you die. At the other end, you have the anomaly artery, which goes to the brain. If I cover that up, you have a stroke. And so putting a stent graft in the aorta has always been a challenge. Well, for the arise graft, we, we developed a graft that I could actually partly deploy and then I could maneuver it so that it would land where I wanted to without obstructing the coronary arteries and without affecting the aortic valve and land short of the nominate artery. Uh, so what we found is these people, when, when we cover them up, would recover like most endovascular procedures in a day or two, as opposed to the weeks to months it took people to recover from surgery. Now, this is still very early in the experience. It's still not ready for prime time yet. But like many things that we've done in surgery, and I know that you've seen a minimally invasive surgery, what once was hard will eventually become routine. Yeah, it's, um, it is quite stunning. And um, sadly, there's uh, someone I know who recently, her husband, who's quite a young man, had a dissection and there was quite a delay to his operation and, and he succumbed um, as it dissected. And I remember seeing that. Boy, as a medical student, a guy came in and they they did an angiogram and you could see this thing and it was, God, it's like something out of a science fiction movie. It's yeah. a really, really scary thing for to see and obviously for the poor patient and their family. So, boy, there's so much we could cover. You could, you should, you, first of all, you should probably have your own podcast because you're great at explaining this. So, uh, in your spare time. Yeah. So between, between the left atrium and the ventricle, we've got the mitral valve, which can stenose or more commonly fail, leading to regurgitations quite common. This also used to be fixed at open surgery. And then along comes transcatheter mitral valve replacement or TMVR. Your national principal investigator for the Cephia and Apollo TMVR studies. Care to share your thoughts on these? And then maybe why transcatheter aortic and mitral valve replacements are different other than, of course, just being different valves because they're not that far apart geographically. Well, that's a, that's an interesting question and topic, Jonathan. So you know, transcatheteric valve implantation or TAVI has been phenomenally successful. Last year in the TVT registry, which records all TAVIs done in the U.S., we did 98,504 TAVIs. In 2023, we'll do over 100,000 incredibly successful. So everybody wanted to move on to the mitral valve, thinking that this is the next place to go. The problem is the anatomy and physiology of the aortic valve and mitral valves are completely different. There's a slide that people often show that's a little bit of a joke. And on one side, there's a panel with an on-off switch. And on the other side, there's the cockpit of a 747. The on-off switch is the aortic valve. The cockpit of the 747 is the mitral valve. 
the mitral valve is not only just the valve and where it's attached, but it has these cords that go down to muscles inside the ventricle. They're like the shrouds of a parachute. And, and it's much more complex for us to deal with. Also, when I put a mitral valve in, the left ventricle has got a pretty bad design. Someday I should talk to God about this. The left <laughs> ventricle is like a truncated cone that you t- cut the top off and you cut two holes at the top, inflow and outflow right next to each other. So when the blood comes in, it has to go into the ventricle, make a 180 degree turn and then come back out the auric valve. That also means that when I put something in the mitral valve, if it sticks too far into the left ventricle, it can obstruct the outflow of the, of the left ventricle and obstruct blood flow through the aortic valve. And of course, if you obstruct it enough, that's like having severe aortic stenosis and your patient dies. It's called left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. So it's been a lot more complex to design valves that we can then put in across the venous system without putting a hole in the heart, which is how the original ones were done through the apex of the heart, and do it in such a way that it doesn't obstruct outflow. Now, again, we're making great strides. It is, it is moving slower than I think most of us in the field would have liked to have seen. But, but like most other things, we're seeing iterative devices that are getting better and better. And I think within about five years, this will become a fairly commonplace approach. In addition, we're actually doing trials on repair devices that we do with a catheter that mimic what I do as a surgeon, which is putting in new cords to replace cords that have broken and it let the leaflets flail and leak. And we're learning to do that with catheters also. So I tell you, Jonathan, there's some really exciting stuff going on in the mitral space and the tricuspid space. Uh, it is a little earlier than the aortic space, but it's getting there. Yeah, I've, I, there's obviously the surgical skill and there's the insight as to, my goodness, here's what we could do. We could fix the, the corda. We could suture them. We could, you know, prosthetics, Lord knows what. But also a big shout out to the people who work in the medical device field yeah. and, and tissue engineers, you know, material scientists, people who do CAD-CAM designing, um, people, you know, I've got a lot of friends who work in that space. And, you know, you can have all the invention in the world, but if you don't have people who can make the, this, the, these pieces of kit do what it says on the tin, as we say over here. Would, well, they're they're brilliant people, and, and, yeah. and, the, and I tell you, I work with them every day. One other real comment about TAVI and, and transcatheter mitral and tricuspid valves, you know, the, the, the ability to do a good surgical aortic valve replacement or a good mitral valve repair or replacement takes a lot of training. It's, it's a technical thing, and most technical things take about 10,000 hours of practice to get really, yeah. really good at it, whereas TAVI and, and transcatheter mitral valves are, are, are not techniques, but they're technology. And technology is much easier to learn. And, and, and you can learn to do a good TAVI much faster than you can learn to do a good surgical aortic valve. And what this means is there's a lot of parts of the, of the U.S. and other parts of the world where there aren't physicians around that have done a thousand aortic valve replacements. And yet they can learn TAVI in 20 or 30 cases and be just as good. So this has really allowed the dissemination of care in places where it was very difficult before, or people would have had to travel hundreds or sometimes thousands of miles to get the care they needed. Yeah. So um, I, I've been dying to ask this question. When I first heard about this, we, we, we have a friend in common uh, who's also been a guest on this podcast, Scott Parazinski. And when Scott told me what you got up to, I was like, get out of here. So I know it's an area of expertise for you, the treatment of cardiac tumors, so much so that you've got the largest 
cardiac sarcoma unit on the planet have operated on five continents for this indication. I have never even seen a cardiac tumor, and I don't think there was one in any of the hospitals I worked in. So can you give us like cardiac tumors 101? What are some of the key considerations in diagnosing and managing this presumably very rare condition? And talk, talk us through what you do in the operating theater. So cardiac tumors, Jonathan, are very rare. They occur in about 0.001 to 0.003% of autopsies. And, and to kind of put that into, into easier to understand terms, maybe about one out of every 500 cardiac surgeries might involve some sort of tumor. Now, when we look at them, some of them are benign and some of them are malignant. About three quarters are benign and about one quarter are malignant. Of the malignant ones, about three quarters are sarcomas. Now, sarcomas are like carcinomas. They're just from a different cell of origin. Both of them are malignant, but carcinomas come from the cells that line things, like your, your lungs, your breast ducts, your GI tract, your skin, where sarcomas come from the support structures of your body, like bone or fat or muscle or blood vessels. And because these support structures turn over less often than lining cells, there's less chance of genetic abnormalities leading to cancer. And so primary cardiac sarcomas, sarcomas that start in the heart, don't spread from somewhere else, are very rare. And one of the problems I had early on is patients would come to me and their doctors had told them they had never seen a sarcoma of the heart, which didn't lead to a lot of confidence. Well, right next door to my hospital is the MD Anderson Cancer Center, which is one of the premier cancer centers in the world. They do chest surgery, but not heart surgery. So we formed a program over 20 years ago where we have a team, a multidisciplinary team that meets and goes over all these complex tumors. Benign tumors are pretty easy for, for us to take care of, but the sarcomas are very complex. And all of them are seen by a multidisciplinary team where we plan together what would be the appropriate treatment. And then I typically handle the surgery at my hospital, Houston Methodist Hospital, and they handle chemotherapy at MD Anderson. For primary cardiac sarcoma without surgery, the average survival is measured in months, usually less than six months. We now have patients surviving 10 years. That's not quite where I want to be, but we are making progress. And to do the procedures, you want to give us a... Well, so the procedure, yeah, so the procedure is very, I mean, the interesting thing, unlike coronary bypass or heart valve surgery, where each, each surgery is relatively the same, it's pretty repetitive. Each one of these complex malignant cardiac tumors is a unique case. Each one is like its own individual little art project. You have to look at the tumor, figure out what you can take out because you can't take out everything in the heart. Well, you can, but, but you don't want to because then you have to put in an artificial heart or transplant them and what you can rebuild. So on the right side of the heart, I can take out all the right atrium. I can replace the tricuspid valve. I can replace the right coronary artery. I can take out all the left atrium. These are the filling chambers of the heart, not the pumping chambers the pumping chambers become more difficult. Now, the right side of the heart really isn't on the right. The right side of the heart is in front. The heart rotates in a counterclockwise fashion so that the left atrium and the left heart are really in back, not on the left. So when these tumors occur in the left atrium, the entire heart is in my way. And these extensive tumors, if you don't get the, a complete resection, will just grow back very rapidly. So to get the exposure we needed, Back in 1998, we decided we would then take the heart completely out, put it in a bucket of ice. That way I can see the back of the left atrium, take the whole thing out and, and replace it. 
And then in the bucket of ice, I can flip the left atrium over so that once so the front wall of the back chamber is now the back wall of the front chamber. And I can then take that out and repair it. And I just flip the heart over and sew it back in. We call that a cardiac autotransplantation. We've since kind of modified our techniques and sometimes leave the, the vein to the lower body, the inferior vena cava attached, and just pull the heart up on that out of the chest, operate while it's still sitting in the chest, and then sew everything back together, which has simplified it to some extent. But there are challenging and unique cases. Each one is a little bit different. Well, um, the next time I'm in the United States, I'm going to be calling and saying, if you've got a case, I want to come and come and watch that. That must be, you know, I called it an operating theater, which is, of course, what we call them over here in America. They're operating rooms for the uninitiated. But I think when you're working, it, it's a theater. Yeah. So in, in the field of structural heart disease, what are some of the catheter-based approaches that you use to treat patients and how have they evolved over the years? Well, I think, I think the catheter-based treatment of structural heart is something that's undergone an explosion in the last several decades. We've already talked about TAVI. You know, I've mentioned that this year we'll be doing over 100,000 TAVIs in the U.S. There are now more TAVIs done than all surgical aortic valves put together in the U.S., almost by double. And that's, you can see how that's changed the field. And, and we're moving towards replacing the mitral and tricuspid valves, and we're working on repair, transcatheter repair options. For the mitral valve, it's always better from a surgical standpoint to repair the valve rather than place it if we can. You're always better off with your own valve as long as it's working. And, and so we're moving forward on those. Plugging holes in the heart has become very easy. We go in and we plug the holes <clears throat> with these little catheters, and we have these little clamshell devices that allow us to close them. Surgeons that sometimes put a valve in, there's a leak around the valve. We just have to operate on those, take them out. We can go in there and put a plug in there and, and, and avoid surgery. People with atrial fibrillation, stroke was a big worry because the appendage, which is a little outpouching left atrium, would often form clots. They'd throw out and cause a stroke. We can now go in with a catheter and plug that left atrial appendage and decrease the risk of stroke. So I tell you, the... the, the the advances that we've seen, Jonathan, are just staggering. And it's also staggering that they're not slowing down. The advance continues and it continues at a very rapid rate. And I'd imagine with, um, you know, improved imaging, I'm working with some guys on another project. And when I, when someone tells me something's going to be 3D printed, I still laugh about it. I still yeah. find the whole thing so damn magical. It's, uh, yeah. it's astonishing. So, um, you know, as we were saying, I was very lucky to be involved in helping develop some of the minim minimally invasive approaches for general and colorectal surgery. Can you discuss some of the latest advances in uh, minimally invasive techniques for cardiac surgery and how they benefit patients in terms of recovery and outcomes? Yeah. So I think, you know, besides moving to smaller incisions, robotic surgery is really taking off uh, in heart surgery. It's taken a while. Uh, my thoracic surgeons do almost all their lung resections robotically now. Heart surgery has been a little, little bit harder and slower to start because the robot is really good for taking things out. It's a little harder for rebuilding things, particularly inside the heart. But the, but the technology and techniques are rapidly catching up. So if I do your mitral valve repair robotically, you have a series of very small holes in your heart. But even more importantly, for anybody that's ever sat at one of these robots, you have binocular 3D vision. And you, can, and you have a magnified field that's about 16 times bigger than you need, and you can scale the movement of your hands so that it moves it 
a, a different rate uh, for how much movement. So it really steadies your, your movements. And the mitral valve has been repaired robotically for, oh, a decade and a half, two decades now. There are now patients in the U.S., uh, Benny Bodwar at West Virginia is one of the leaders in this, that are doing robotic aortic valve replacement. So I think the, the keys that we're looking for are smaller holes in the body, safer cardiopulmonary bypass, and we continue to do that, and early recovery from cardiac surgery, uh, which entails a bunch of different things, including you know, uh, local blocks to avoid pain so people wake up without hurting. So I think the, the minimally invasive heart surgery is expanding in, in leaps and bounds also. Um, and it is in some ways competitive, but most ways complementary to transcatheter. So um, I, I'm putting my mind back to when I was going through my training. A colleague of mine uh, was doing some work on the cerebral impact of pulsatile cardiopulmonary bypass, mm -hmm. which I believe isn't used any longer. Where are we with some of the more challenging risks and complications associated with complex cardiac procedures, both physical and emotional. You know, I, I have this, this perspective um, that when we as doctors treat someone, there's the disease that we treat, but then there's the dis-ease, the, you know, the concern that people have. And I believe that that's more, probably more pronounced in, in cardiac illness. So yeah, where are we with those sort of complications? Well, I think, I think you're exactly right. I mean, you know, heart surgery generally is, is an emotionally trying thing for all your patients because it just is looked upon. Heart surgery and brain surgery are both kind of looked upon as really big things to have happen to you. Paul style flow is very interesting. The, the, the man who really uh, first successfully used the heart-lung machine was Gibbon. And Gibbon got interested in this because he had one of his patients die of a pulmonary embolus. And before we had the heart-lung machine, we, we'd watch patients with a pulmonary embolus or a clot that went from your leg to your lung, and we'd wait for them to die. And then we'd cut their chest open as fast as we could, open up the artery, try to pull out the clot, close the artery, squeeze their heart, and get it going again. As you might imagine, that was quite messy and not always successful. But Gibbon just knew that if he could just support the heart for a short period of time, getting this clot out and saving the patients would be uh, a relatively easy thing to do. And so he worked, started working on the pump. Now, he wanted to make a pulse-tile pump to begin with, but it was very complex. And it was Michael DeBakey who actually came up to him and said, hey, here's this roller pump that I created when I was a medical student for transfusing blood. You should use this. It's very simple. And that's when he developed the, the heart-lung machine with the roller pump, used it successfully on an ASD. His next four patients actually died, and he quit using the pump. But other surgeons pushed on, and it became something that was easier to use and, and, and reproducible. Now, interesting in thinking about minimally invasive approaches, the pump was developed by Gibbon to treat pulmonary embolus or clot to the lung. And then when I was young, if it got bad enough, we operated on these people and pulled the clots out. Now I go up through the leg with a catheter and suck the clots out without ever opening the chest. So there's another area where minimally invasive procedures have just supplanted open heart surgery for the good of patients. So I said uh, a little bit before that, you know, there's so much to unpack with you. I think any one of these subjects could be a podcast series, obviously. Um, and, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to drill down further at a later date, but given that we're coming to the end, 
Michael, if you came across a magical genie who granted you three wishes to improve the field of cardiothoracic surgery or healthcare in general, what would those wishes be? Well, I tell you, Jonathan, I wish I could find that genie. Uh, I'd have more than three wishes, but if I was only granted three, the first thing I'd wish for would really be equitable and wide access to medical care. It is really distressing to me to see the number of people, uh, certainly in the States and really across the world, that can't get the kind of care they need. So that would be wish number number one. Wish number two, that, that we continue to advance minimally invasive and transcatheter procedures. This has really been a boom for our patients. You know, surgery is kind of a blunt tool for things. And the more we can dull that out with less invasive procedures, that's good. And then lastly, and some, this is something I'm working very hard on, is a biologic approach to carcinomas and sarcomas. Surgery, again, is a pretty blunt tool. We're taking all our sarcomas and looking at the DNA, the RNA, and the proteinomics of it. And eventually, my hope is that we'll have a biologic approach, and I can eliminate the need for surgery for sarcomas and give people a potential cure or at least long-term control of the disease. So when you find that genie, Jonathan, give me my number. I'm ready. <laughs> well, I think if anyone can achieve those uh, those things, you, you're you're your intellect and your energy are admirable. Unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. I'd like to thank you, Professor Michael Reardon, for sharing your expertise with us with such enthusiasm, and frankly, for all you're doing for patients living with cardiovascular disease. It's been a pleasure and a privilege to speak with you. Well, Jonathan, thank you for the privilege of being part of your podcast and sharing just a fascinating conversation with you. I I enjoyed it uh, immensely. You're a prince among men. So, folks, please join us again next week for another fascinating episode of the EMJ podcast. And hopefully it stimulates you like it stimulates me to do more reading and try and exercise my brain. Don't forget to like us on social media. Tell your friends, subscribe so that you don't miss an episode and check out the archives because there's absolutely gobloads of uh, really good episodes. Um, Until next week, though. I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. I thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. And please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.